Moses is actually confronting God, and he meant to. This is very interesting today as we begin to study God's Word. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hemp. I'm Janice. And this is a program called Bible Discovery TV as we look at Numbers chapter 14. Fascinating stuff. Now, Corey is here with Ryan. Corey, what are you doing? I'm going to be taking my cue from Numbers chapter 15 and looking at the tassels that God wanted on the Israelites' garments. Ryan? Well, today I'm exploring a strange and mysterious phenomenon of historical anniversaries that's governed the life of God's chosen people. All right, historical anniversaries. Look forward to that. Now, what are you doing? Trust the hope of Jesus is the name of my segment today. All right, very good. So get the Bible out. That's the most important book of all. God's written it. It's well established, more published than any other book in more languages. And get it out because we're going to study that from Numbers chapter 14. Get your Bible guide. We'll tell you how to get one later. Let's listen to God. Numbers 14, verses 6 through 19. But Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones, now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it. For by your might you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, 
according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Numbers chapter 14, verses 6 through 19. Numbers 14, Numbers 15, Numbers 16. That's our reading today as we go through the entire Bible. And uh, today we're going to focus on Numbers chapter 14 and highlight some scriptures out of it to hear what God is saying to us. You know, nothing is more evident than the mercy of God Almighty. The Lord has extended his mercy towards us and has saved us from the devastation of hell, which is real. God is long-suffering and has set an example for humanity through his Son, Jesus Christ. Though many have rejected Christ as Christians, we recognize that it is only forgiveness through Jesus Christ that allows us to be made holy in God's eyes. Now Moses knew this personally. God chose him for the leadership of Israel, even though years earlier he had murdered an Egyptian. Now, this mercy is something that Moses needed to identify when God confronted him about the spies that he had sent. Only two came back successfully from the promised land. Who were they? Caleb and Joshua. And the rest were all negative. They were all saying, no, 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 no. And by the way, no, we can't do it. Now, this is something else. I'll tell you, God's mercy. I want to tell you, if ever there is a time when we see the mercy of God, we see it in the wilderness with Israel. Israel tended, like all of us do, all people do, human race, tended to complain and focus on the negative all the time. God was trying to show them how to become his people by staying focused on him because he is the positive. And so if you get your Bible guide and if you don't have one, here's my question. Why not? I'll send you one. Write to us or call us. Ask for it. Or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. Click on the page. It'll take you to it. And you're seconds away. Seconds from downloading it. And you can read the Bible. The most important book ever is the Bible. That's important. Today, we're going to be focusing on Numbers 14 as we highlight the mercy of God. And uh, this is part of a question that I answer on the Wednesdays at 3.30 live, 3.30 to 4.30 live, as we have our prayer meeting on Ask the Pastor. Ask the Pastor is one way that we highlight that. We have guest Kevin Bateman is there, of course. He is on our board in the United States, and he's a great man. Anyway, and uh, he and I, we answer the questions together. So it's really, really good. But Father, I pray in Jesus' name that we would understand. Now, I know your mercy is... How do you understand the mercy of God? I don't know. But Lord, you can help us. Help us today in Jesus' name to hear you. And we said together, amen and amen. Numbers 14, 6 to 9, watch. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephthah, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, the land, the land we pass through, to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, 
a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. The protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them, they said. You know, Joshua and Caleb pleaded with the people not to reject God's plan with fear. Okay, I'm just going to say that again. Joshua and Caleb pleaded with the people not to reject God's plan with fear. We must never reject God's plan. Even today, even right now. God's designed you to live here. If you're watching this, you're alive. God's given you breath. And you know what I say? Because you're alive and I'm alive. Praise God. Praise God. Lord, help me to show people who you are. Help me to live for you. Praise God. We're here and we're alive. We're Christians. Very important. Don't reject God's plan. Thank you, Jesus. Numbers 14.10. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord had appeared in the tabernacle of the meeting before all the children of Israel. What? Do you understand what's happening here? The people, they decided they want to kill Joshua. They want to kill Caleb because they didn't like what they said. They didn't like God's plan. They liked their own plan. God's word and his promises are often rejected by people. Rejected by people. I can't think of a better time to be broadcasting this than right now. Right here with you and me here. Right here. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not a Christian, you think either I'm crazy, I've gone mad, or there's something to this. I'll tell you something. Consider God is real. Jesus Christ is alive. And there is something to this. And you need to come to Jesus Christ. You need to pray and say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I believe you died on the cross and miraculously rose again. And I believe you paid the price of sin. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. If you pray that and mean it, God will change you forever. Let me tell you the truth. Now, let's go on. Numbers 14, verses 11 to 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? How long? And how long will they not believe me? How long? With all the signs which I performed among them, I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them, or disinherit them, and I will make them of you, I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they are. And Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it. For by your might, you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land that they have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, and that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and that your cloud stands above them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard your fame will speak and say, because the Lord has not been able to bring these people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And now, I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, the Lord is long-suffering 
and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, God. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt, even till now. Moses is confronted by God. And Moses is forced to speak to the Lord on behalf of the people. Do you understand? We have to pray every day for the people around us, for our governments, because they need to listen to God. Jesus Christ spoke to us and told us not to be afraid, not to be troubled by these times. This is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of God's final reconciliation with the world. God is going to make things change in our lives. And this is very important. He has selected you and myself to live in this time. And I find that absolutely amazing. Well, continuing on with our Bible study, today I want to take a historical journey and explore eight major events which drastically affected the nation of Israel. Now, what do these events have in common? Well, for one thing, they were all tragedies. But what's more is that no matter what year the event occurred in, it always happened on the same day of the year, the 9th of Av. In fact, the first of these tragic events is recorded in Numbers chapter 13, which was actually a part of our reading yesterday. Now, could it be mere coincidence that eight tragic events directly affecting the nation of Israel would occur on the same day? Well, you be the judge. Many proclaim that history belongs to God. History is his story. But does an examination of said history provide evidence for that claim? For many, and particularly the Jews, God can be the only reasonable explanation. That's because a strange and mysterious phenomenon of historical anniversaries has governed the life of the chosen people. Numerous key historical events, in fact, in relation to the nation of Israel, have coincided exactly with particular Jewish festival or fast days which had been previously established by God. Perhaps the strangest of these historical anniversaries is the 9th of Av, a single day on the Jewish calendar on which a series of at least eight national disasters have occurred. Even today, the 9th of Av is a national feast of mourning for the Jews, known as Tisha B'Av. The first in these series of unfortunate events occurred in 1446 BC. The Israelites are in the desert, recently having experienced the miraculous exodus, and are now poised to enter the Promised Land. But first, they dispatch a reconnaissance mission to assist in formulating a prudent battle strategy. Unfortunately, 10 out of the 12 spies return with a bad report, claiming that the land is unconquerable. For this public demonstration of distrust in his power, God turns their short 40-day reconnaissance mission into a 40 years of wilderness wandering effectively preventing anyone from that generation, except the two faithful spies, from entering that land. A second tragedy occurred in 589 BC when the Babylonians destroyed the first Jewish temple built by King Solomon. Similarly, just as the Babylonians had destroyed their first temple, 
the Romans, five centuries later, would destroy their second temple. The date? The 9th of Av, 70 AD, an event foretold nearly 40 years earlier by Jesus Christ. Then, exactly one year later, the Roman army plowed with salt the site of the Temple Mount and the whole city as a symbol of Rome's utter defeat of its enemy. A few years after that, when the Jews rebelled against Rome, they believed that their leader, Simon Bar Kokhba, would fulfill their messianic longings. But their hopes were cruelly dashed in AD 133 as the Jewish rebels were brutally butchered in the final battle at Batar, again on the 9th of Av. Over a thousand years later, tragedy would strike yet again as the ruthless English king Edward I ordered the expulsion of all Jews from the nation in 1290. Following suit just a couple hundred years later, the Spanish government also ordered the expulsion of the Jews. Finally, on the 9th of Av in August 1914, as the Jews fasted and mourned, World War I was declared. Statistically speaking, it is virtually impossible that these eight specific events would all fall on the very day of the Feast of Mourning by simple happenstance. The only rational explanation is that God indeed is in control of history and is greatly involved with the nation of Israel. Furthermore, this same God will return to his people as their Messiah to set up his long-awaited kingdom, and the fasts and mourning will be turned into feasts of joy. Now, just in case that you're still in doubt that God was involved here, let's just for a minute consider the statistics. Let's do the math. So a tragic event occurs on the 9th of Av, and then a second tragic event occurs on the same day of a different year. How do we calculate the odds? Well, it's actually pretty simple. Since there are 365 days in a year, the chance that a second significant historical tragedy could occur by random chance alone on the very same anniversary date of a previous tragedy is one multiplied by 365, or one chance in 365. The odds against a third similar historical event occurring to the same nation on the exact same day is 1 times 365 times 365, which is equal to one chance in 133,225. Now jumping ahead for the sake of time, the odds that all eight historical events would occur by random chance alone on the 9th of Av rather than by God's providential design is equal to 1 multiplied by 8 365s. This adds up to only one chance in 873 quadrillion. Now that's 873 with 15 zeros, if you can believe it. Obviously, the idea that these events all occurred by random chance is mathematically impossible. History truly is his story, and it's not over yet. Remember, God's going to return to his people as their Messiah to set up his long-awaited kingdom, and the fasts and mourning the yeah, the fast and morning will be turned into feasts of joy for all of us. You know, one of the things that's interesting is that a miracle is defined as 210 with 10 zeros behind it. So that number was a bigger number yeah. than that. So that's really interesting. I find that fascinating. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and, and if you take 365, that's our year, but if you take 360 days, that's the year of the Jews, uh, is 360 days, and you multiply it that way, 
it's still a huge number. Oh, for sure, yeah. It's, so, it, it definitely didn't happen by random chance. No, it did not happen by random chance. That's really true. Okay, Corey, what's up? All right, well, we're taking a look at another cultural element uh, that doesn't just apply here in numbers. It will also apply to the entire Old and New Testaments of the Bible. So one thing that I want to talk about today is this idea of the value and the purpose of clothing and textiles. Because while we assign today in the Western world, we assign some value to clothing, especially very high-end clothing. It can show off, you know, our status, our economic status, things of that nature. Uh, it, it can even be used artistically to dress ourselves here in the West. But by and large, because we live in a day and age where clothing can be made not by hand, but by machines, uh, it is a lot cheaper and a lot easier to come by than it ever has been in the past. So today I wanna to focus first on the ancient uh, process of making textiles and clothes and then we'll talk about it in relation to the scripture here. Take a look. Clothing has always been an important part of the human experience and its symbolic use in the Bible is powerful, though not always explained. From discovered tablets in a few ancient cities, scholars have translated cultural attitudes toward clothing that can be helpful in proper biblical understanding. Mesopotamian documents stress the importance of the hem of garments. The hem was more than a practical reinforcement of an outfit. It was decorated and matched the person's life status, rank, and social standing. In Mesopotamian culture, it was considered an extension of the person themselves. Therefore, any alterations or damages to the hem were important. For example, in pagan rituals of exorcism, pieces of the hem would be cut off and rituals done to them as if it were the person themselves. Pagan prophets of Mari would send small pieces of their hem to the king as a personal guarantee of their prophecy. And as the final act in Mesopotamian divorce, the husband would remove the hem of his wife, removing her status as married into his household. In the Bible, Israelites were commanded to add tassels to their hems that incorporated a single blue thread. These tassels, with their streak of expensive ancient color, were to remind of the status of Israelites as covenant people. There are also several instances of the hem of garments being removed in the Bible. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul tears the hem of the prophet and priest Samuel. Samuel then tells Saul that God has likewise ripped the kingdom away from Saul. As you have ripped my identity, God has torn away yours. In 1 Samuel 24, David chooses to cut a piece of Saul's kingly hem in order to prove that he's not murderous. But once he does it, he's overcome with guilt. David will not try to take Saul's life nor his kingship as represented by the hem of his garment. Clothing as a whole also signified status and position. Take, for example, how only the priests were to wear linen ephods, or how a person's shoe could represent their responsibility in legal matters. Akkadian tablets from the 13th century record an instance of divorce between a king and his queen. Their son, the crowned prince, may also leave with his mother and forfeit his status as next in line to the king. If he leaves, he must remove his clothing and place it on the throne. His clothing is tied to his role as crown prince. In the Saul and David narratives, the first kings of Israel, this same concept is present. After Saul is decommissioned as king by God, Saul literally disrobes and falls before Samuel. 
This also helps explain the covenant between Israel's crown prince, Jonathan, and David. Jonathan disrobes and gives his clothing and armor to David, supporting David as the new crowned prince of Israel. So when we see the value that was attached to ancient clothing, it was very available for really amazing symbolism. And that's what we see here in Numbers chapter 15, where God assigned tassels to be worn on the Israelites' clothing to remind them of him. Now, there is a really overarching theme in the Bible that we don't really have time to go into, but it has to do with how God clothed Adam and Eve after they fell and how that theme is picked up in the New Testament when we are said, it's said of Christians that God clothes us in the righteousness of Christ, because just like Adam and Eve, we are insufficient now. So God clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. There's rich symbols in there that we'll talk about later. Excellent, excellent. Janice? Trust in the hope of Jesus was what I titled my segment today. We're looking at a Numbers chapter 14 where Israel refuses to enter Canaan. We know that a delegation of 12 men were sent into the promised land to take a look at it. A lot of people call them spies. 10 came back with a really bad report. And it says here, so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night. Why? Why were the people crying? They were crying because their dreams were dashed because of what these 10 men came back and said. They were going to a promised land that God had promised them and they were hearing that they could never win. They, could, they couldn't take the land and so their dreams were dashed and they had their own sense of doubt that it had been a mistake to leave Egypt. I want to remind us today, I want to be like Joshua and Caleb and talk about the goodness of God and talk about when God makes a promise to us, he stands on that promise. And you know what? There will be days when it doesn't feel like it, when it doesn't feel like things are going your way. In fact, sometimes you may even pray and it feels like it's hitting the ceiling and ricocheting back down. But let me tell you, God hears your prayers. God sees your heart and he knows what's going on. And the promises that he gives us in his word are true and they stand today. His word, and I'm so glad that you have joined us so early in the year, because if you've never read the Bible before, I challenge you to stick with it and read through and learn along with us what God has told us, what he has promised us. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you that in me, Jesus says, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said. But here's what he said. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And that is the absolute truth. I believe it. It's a part of my testimony. I stand on God's word. Nothing can change my heart on it. And so if you're feeling that you're going through a real rough patch and you've spent countless nights crying yourself to sleep, don't doubt what God says. Trust in his word. And if you're having a hard time to trust him, ask him to help you to trust in him. He knows your heart. He hears you. And he's reaching out and his promises for you are absolutely true. Stick with his word this week. Stick with the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust the hope of Jesus. He is our hope.